May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good news, the operation was a complete success. Everything went exactly as we had expected. Perhaps there were a few complications, nothing we couldn't handle. We expect a complete recovery. These are the words that you want to hear when you're in a waiting room, waiting for someone to come out and tell you how the surgery of a loved one just progressed in the, in, you know, the, the operating theater. There are no better words you can hear than these words. I've been a clergyman for a couple of decades now. Um, and uh, that brings with it a, a little bit of um, a comfort and, uh, you know, scores of times I've been in those waiting rooms waiting for that man or woman in a white coat to come out and say things just like that. And call me just a little bit of a cynic. I mean, I don't know, maybe just a tad bit. Um, I always wonder, is it really possible that every single surgery was such a booming success? I mean, is that really, at the very least, at the very least, I expect that there was a time or two when the surgeon could have said, um, Truth is, um, I cut my finger with a scalpel while we were in there, and um, I had to get a couple stitches, and we'd have been done an hour ago if that hadn't happened, but we're all good, no problem. Um, I, I think that, that maybe, um, uh, you know, funny thing, um, we, we couldn't find a sponge. There was one that was missing. We couldn't account for it, and we looked all, I pulled the spleen back. It wasn't there, you know. We were, and, and then Bob had it stuck to his, his shirt, and, and we all had a big laugh about it, you know. I guess you had to be there, you know. It was, it was, I, I expect that that probably has happened, something like that, probably. But if you're in the waiting room, and they come out and they say, everything's going to be perfect, she's going to be fine, He's going to be okay. Everything went well. You realize that you've been holding your breath for a long time. And you feel like this big weight just kind of comes off of your shoulders. Now you know that just these little simple words bring such relief, such a, a sense of, of comfort. But the opposite is true as well. I mean, little words can be disturbing, can't they? I mean, there are little times where just a few small words. I mean, even in simple things, you're watching your, your favorite football team in the playoffs. You're obviously not, uh, it's not the Cleveland Browns, but you're watching your favorite team in the playoffs. And, um, and they, they score the go-ahead touchdown with seconds to go. And everybody's high-fiving and chest-bumping. And, and then you notice a yellow flag laying on the field. And you watch as the referee walks over, looks at the camera and says, holding. And then you wait. And he points towards your team. Of course he does, you know. And, and we'll wait till next year. <laughs> wait till next year. This is, this is what happens. Uh, just holding, you can call holding on virtually any play in football, right? And they call it now on your team at this time. Or, or maybe, um, you know, your car's acting up and you, uh, you take it to the shop, you know, your faithful, trusty mechanic and, you leave it there, and your friend brings you at, at the end of the day, and, and you go see the mechanic, and he's walking out, you know, wiping his hands with a towel, and he says, bad news, you know, your flux capacitor's broke, um, $1,300, and you're like, do I need a flux capacitor, you know, is it, if you're going to travel through time, you do, um, yeah, and you decide at that moment, you, you hear him saying $1,300, and you're like, 
Well, I can have a reliable car or a vacation, but I'm probably not going to have both this year. You know, this is a a letdown moment. Or there are even more disturbing words. You know, the ones that are hardest to hear. Words like leukemia or kidney failure, cancer. These words that can, can strike right to the core very quickly. Take your breath away. And sometimes words are tough to hear, but it doesn't mean that they're not necessary. Sometimes there are words you just don't want to hear, spoken, but sticking your head in the sand is no good. Jesus is in Jerusalem. Um, It's uh, close to the time where he's about to be arrested, tried, crucified. Um, He has been in hot dispute with, uh, with the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and things are getting really heated. And there's a back and forth between them, and somebody's clever enough to change the subject. I bet you missed this. If you read through this a hundred times, um, you would miss this in in the text. Uh, I want to give you just a little bit, just to hear a little bit what's going on by by taking some excerpts out, okay? And in in chapter 20, um, some of the scribes say to Jesus, Teacher, you have spoken well. He's been in hot dispute with some people, and somebody says, you know what? You're a pretty clever guy. That's a, you, you, have, you have spoken, and they're scribes, people who are biblical scholars. Um, and in hearing this, uh, he says to his, to his followers, uh, beware of the scribes. <laughs> the scribes just said, you have spoken well. And Jesus looks at his friends and says, watch out for these guys. They're, they're no good. They would devour a widow's house for nothing. I mean, they, they are after nothing but their, their own well-being. This has got to be a little hostile, doesn't it? I mean, he just insults the people who said that he has done a pretty good thing. And somebody says in verse 5, someone was speaking of the temple and, and how adorned it was with noble stones and offerings. So there's this dispute between Jesus and the scribes. And somebody says, wow. Isn't this a beautiful temple? <laughs> I mean, a total change of the subject. Uh, you know, the wallpaper. I don't know where they got it, but this is really fantastic stuff. You know, it's like laden with gold. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. If he could just take the bait, just one time, like, let the subject change. Let it go away. But he turns to his friends, his followers, very ordinary people, very workaday, you know, farmers and fishermen and carpenters, mothers and grandmothers, He turns to these people, people who have very low expectation of a luxurious future, peasants, and he begins to predict the future. Not like the lady with the bandana on her head and the tarot cards who always, even when you get the death card, has some good news to give you. Oh, this really isn't like it seems, you know. Um, Not that I've ever done that. But, you know, you have the idea, you know, the people who always predict the future and it's always rosy and glorious and perfect and... um, you know, what's that, what's that person you've got your eye on? Oh, yeah, you're going to be with them. You know, not like that at all. In fact, quite the opposite. Somebody says, wow, look at the temple. Isn't it beautiful? And what does Jesus say? As for these things that you see, this temple, the days will come when there will not be left one, here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Beautiful, big, giant temple. And Jesus says, you know what? It's not going to be long until every single one of these stones is going to be destroyed. It's going to be flattened. It's going to be blown over like it doesn't even exist. And what you may or may not know 
is that the temple that Jesus is looking at, the temple that everybody's admiring, was the second one. Solomon built the first one, and it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 B.C. It was totally flattened and destroyed. Almost a century later before it was rebuilt. And Jesus is saying, I know you think that this is a really beautiful temple, but guess what? This one's going down too. And if you're an ancient Near Easterner and you hear him say that, there's only one thing that means. War. Bloody, violent, scorched earth war is coming your way. He goes on with more uh, rosy predictions. And in uh, verse uh, 10, he says, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from the heavens. Not only is it going to be chaotic with war, but guess what? Natural disasters are coming too. <laughs> or we got earthquakes and, and we've got an inhospitable environment where you can't do agriculture, you can't grow food and people are going to starve. It's going to be a very difficult time to be alive in the very near future. Which sounds like you should buy stocks. Um, I don't know. But, you know, this is a kind of a, a frightening look in the future, isn't it? This is a, a, a terrible prediction. But it gets actually worse. Verse 16. You, that is, y'all. He says this, if you read this in Greek, it says y'all. Um, y'all will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all people for my name's sake. Um, Not only are things going to be really bad in terms of war and natural disasters, but guess what? Being a Christian is going to be like a really bad thing then. Bit of a history lesson. Um, In the year 70 A.D., about 50 years after Jesus said these things, uh, the Romans did literally destroy the city of Jerusalem. And the very last thing they did on their way out was to destroy, to level the, 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 the temple in Jerusalem. They burn it to the ground. They destroy. They busted every stone in the building. Today, the only thing that's left is a little bit of a wall that used to be part of the courtyard. And even right now, at this very moment, there are Jews in Jerusalem standing outside that wall, wailing and crying and praying. It's called the Wailing Wall. It's the only thing that remains. Jesus' prediction literally came true. To make matters worse, like like salt in a wound, there is a mosque, the Dome of the Rock, built right on top of the site where the former temple used to, to stand. It was a brutal time to be alive. Uh, The question that plagued me all week as I read through this rosy uh, passage of of Scripture, you know, one of the real feel-good passages um, you you want to give somebody when they're feeling really down, uh, this this passage was, why in the world would he tell them this? Why would you say this? Does he want to frighten people? Perhaps he wants to establish his legitimacy. See, I told you so. I told you it was going to happen, and it happened. Or maybe he's angry with them. I don't think any of those. I think it was to prepare them. I think Jesus wants to prepare his followers for what will not always be an easy road to hoe. Like a physician who has to give bad news in order to give the protocol for healing and, and, and restoration of health, you have to tell people sometimes things they don't want to hear. 
I notice a contradiction in this passage. He says, Jesus says at one point, um, they're going to deliver you. Some of you will die. And then in, at the end, but not one hair on your head will be harmed. Well, I don't know how you're going to die if not without one hair being harmed. You know, that's certainly the first to go. Uh, I, I think what he's saying is, you'll be, some of you will die. But there are things worse than death. Because you are built for eternity. You are built to live beyond death. And if someone kills you, that's not the worst thing that could happen to you. You can still save your suke, he says. Your soul will be saved. Um, you know, Jesus' words were, I think, a tough prediction for people who followed him in his day. And down through time, ever since that, there have been ebbs and flows in the world's acceptance of Christianity. Sometimes it's been a really, you know, it's a really great thing to be a Christian, a very popular thing. Very easy thing to do. Other times it's a very difficult thing. Sometimes it's difficult to be a certain type of Christian, you know? You don't want to be a Catholic in Switzerland in the 16th century. You know, this is not a good thing. Uh, you, you don't want to be a Protestant in, in Rome in the, in the 16th century. That, that would be a really difficult thing to be. But down through the ages, it's been sometimes good, sometimes bad, a mixed, a mixed bag. But St. Paul says this. He says that all who seek to live... Godly lives will suffer, and that's for certain. The question I think that this text points us to, the the thing that kind of pushes us up against, is this question, how committed are we to the gospel? How committed are we to Jesus? And this is the ultimate question, isn't it? Whether, Whether my life is easy or hard or somewhere in between, how committed am I to Jesus? I mean, what if our friends and our family turned us over to the government, as he says some of them will face? What then? What if it cost us money to be a Christian? What if it, what if it cost us opportunity in business? What if it cost us advancement at our company? What if it cost, you know, friendships? You, you wouldn't be invited into certain social circles if people knew that you followed Jesus. Or what about intellectual credibility? Oh, you really don't believe that, do you? That's so, that's so medieval superstition. You certainly, a, an educated person wouldn't believe such things. I think that all of us have to face a time when we decide whether or not the gospel is really worth it. Whether it's worth dying for and everything else before that. Perhaps you remember the story of, uh, of Nelson Mandela. Um, Mandela was a member, uh, he was a, a, a black South African member of an, uh, an important family. Um, but it was at a time when, uh, when a white minority ruled uh, South Africa. And they instituted this uh, policy called apartheid. And apartheid was basically that, um, that there were certain privileges set aside for white people only in a majority black South Africa. So whites only were allowed it in certain neighborhoods. Um, they were only, whites only in certain high-paying uh, jobs, um, whites only at certain beaches, um, all, all sorts of places that were like that. And, and Mandela came, as I said, from an important family, so he had an opportunity to have a university education, he was trained as a, as a lawyer, and he began in his adult life to fight against this government policy of apartheid. And he was often accused of, um, of crimes against the government and had to defend himself for these. But uh, in, in 1962, he was arrested for treason and sentenced to life in prison. And he served 27 years in prison. 
And in 1990, the, the president of, uh, of South Africa, under a huge amount of pressure from the world, um, released Mandela and, and ended apartheid. And in 1994, South Africa had its first free election, and Mandela was elected president of the country. I mean, 27 years in prison, and now he's the president of the country. You know, um, sometimes hardships come our way, and sometimes they last a really long time. The question is, are we ready to weather storms that come our way, or do we give up rather easily? Jim Elliott, a famous missionary to South Africa, said this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Not long after writing that, Jim Elliott was... um, he was killed by some, uh, some indigenous people in South Africa who misunderstood him, and, uh, and he was trying to be a missionary to them, and they thought he was trying to invade them, and they, they, they killed him. And his wife later went as a missionary back to those same people and, uh, and led you know, many people to the Lord, and the faith in Christ continues to, th- to thrive in that area. The question is the question for us. Are we willing to give what we cannot keep? to gain what we cannot lose. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.